Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Few foods are as widespread and common as bread. Bread. You all know what bread is. It has a million different forms, but the essence of bread is very simple. You take wheat, you grind it down into flour, you mix the flour with water and salt, then you have dough, a lump of dough. There's only at that point one ingredient missing, that's leaven, something that will cause that lump of dough to expand and to rise during and after when it bakes. And that's bread. That's very simple. But you have to know just those basics about bread because that is a part of the text of Scripture that we find today, especially that one ingredient of bread, leaven. Today, if you use leaven in bread, it's probably a packet of yeast. It's the thing that makes the bread rise. In the past, it was typically just a leftover bit of the dough from a previous bread, what we call a sourdough starter. But you have to know at least that leaven is the thing that makes the dough rise. Many of you will never become great bakers or amateur bakers or even poor bakers. You may never handle yeast or sourdough starter. It doesn't matter. Every one of you here, though, will encounter false teaching. And our passage today compares false teaching and those who propagate it to the leaven that is found in the process of bread, baking bread. So you don't have to know about leaven in the material world, although you probably do. You do have to know how it relates to false teaching. This is a good picture, leaven, as we're going to see in our text, because when you have a large lump of dough, you have a small bit of leaven. But when you've taken that leaven and put it into that large lump and folded it in and kneaded it into that dough, can you take it back out? Where has it gone? It's gone everywhere in that lump. It cannot be removed. It affects every part of that large lump of dough, although the yeast itself or the leaven itself is very small. I hope you can see why this is a very good picture of false teaching, why it's chosen in the New Testament in our passage as a picture of false teaching. Imagine here in this local fellowship, which is healthy, praise God for that, that's an amazing thing in your doctrine, healthy, but imagine in a fellowship like ours, someone comes in. He's dressed well. He's persuasive. He's well-educated. He's attractive. He seems to have everything going for him, everything put together. He's easygoing. He's so easy to talk to. He gets you. He understands your hobbies. You talk, so you begin to admire this person. He knows the Christian language. He knows how to talk. He knows how to pray. He's known in the community. He's upstanding. Everything is good. We're so glad that he's here. And then you discover in conversation that he does not believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is true, that there's one God who exists as three persons and yet remains one God in being. He thinks that's just a human way of grappling after the divine. 
that we can't really understand God. So that's a human way to try to understand God, but it's not really true. What would happen if this person comes in and he doesn't just hold that privately in his heart, but let's say with some confidence, he wants other people to hold that view. He thinks the Trinity is a silly doctrine. He's a Unitarian, one God, not three persons. What would happen if we brought that man in and folded him into the lump of dough that is this local church? What would happen if we didn't challenge him? We didn't refute his denial of the Trinity. But in fact, we brought him in and needed him into this local assembly. What would happen is that there's not one of you in this church who would not be affected by that single man unconfronted in this body of believers. That's the point of a little leaven that leavens an entire lump of dough. You may not yourself come to deny the Trinity, but you would be influenced, you would be affected, the entire body would be influenced and affected. Now, this bakery lesson that we're talking about today comes to us in the context of Paul battling that very situation. It was not someone denying the Trinity, but you remember it was a group of people denying justification by faith alone, which sits at the very heart of the gospel that we hold. These people were called Judaizers. They had come to the Galatian church. That's the lump of dough. And the leaven of these Judaizers had come in, and they were teaching that you could only be saved if you not only believed in Christ, but also did certain Jewish works such as circumcision and keeping elements of the Jewish law. That was the leaven. Here is the lump of dough, the Galatians. And they were drawing dangerously close together. And that's when Paul wrote this letter that we're reading. Telling the lump, do not let the leaven in. It will ruin everything. So let's look at this and understand this passage, not just as Paul writing to a foreign congregation 2,000 years ago, but this is really God through Paul appealing to us as our father for our safety. So let's read it that way in Galatians 5. And we are beginning in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, that is, as necessary for salvation, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The words are shockingly strong, but the themes found in this passage are none of them new to us. If you have been here for any amount of time as we've gone through this letter to the Galatians, 
You've seen all of these themes before. You know that there is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, holding forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, that any person, Jew or not Jew, any person in this room, any person in this city, in this world, who exercises faith in Jesus Christ, trusting Him only on the basis of His work dying on the cross for sinners and rising from the dead, Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, doing nothing else, faith alone in Jesus Christ, experiences salvation, or what we could call here justification. God looks at that person, still sinful though you may be, says, because you've trusted in my son, I count his righteousness as yours. Your sin as his, dealt with on the cross. That's the gospel. Paul has been proclaiming that. He proclaimed it in Galatia. A church formed. He left and then in came on the other side. The Judaizers. Christians by name who had a Jewish background. Who agreed somewhat with Paul. But what they told the Galatian Christians was Paul's right as far as he goes. But there's something more. Jesus himself was a Jew. If you don't yourself become a Jew, you can't become a true Christian. That is, if you're not circumcised, the mark of being a Jew. If you don't follow certain elements of the Jewish law, including festivals and days and Sabbaths, if you don't do that, you can't really, yes, believe in Jesus. Sure, yes, Paul's right. But it's not faith alone. It's faith plus certain rules here. It is justification by works. That's what the Judaizers are teaching. And that is so dangerous. Not circumcision, that's not tempting to most of us here, but justification or salvation by what you do. That is so dangerous that there's an entire letter like this one that over and over and over again in multiple ways from multiple vantage points with language intensifying to this crescendo today, warning you, don't be led astray by that. Or in the metaphor in our text, don't let that leaven near. It'll poison everything. It'll ruin everything. And that's really what our passage today is. Not new information that you don't already have, but driving the information home in order to protect you from the leaven of this world, from the error by which Satan wants to turn you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do today is look at this leaven. We're going to see what it is, the way Paul is using it, and then we're going to see what it does. So let's begin by looking here at what specifically the leaven is. You already know that it's false teaching and false teachers, but we need to be a little more specific than that. Look here in verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. The persuasion there is what the Judaizers were trying to persuade the Galatians to believe. Namely, justification by faith plus works. It's a persuasion because they're trying to get them to believe that. Persuasion. It's actually summarized quite nicely for us, the position of the Judaizers in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where a group of people just like this made this claim, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
from previous weeks, you'll remember that that is really justification by works. If you don't do this specific work, you can't be saved. Is the work believing in Christ? No, it's something else. And if you don't do it, you cannot be saved. He calls it here in verse 8 a persuasion. Now, notice what he says of this persuasion, this false teaching. He says, quote, it is not from him who calls you. In other words, it's wrong. Because the one who calls them, not only called them, but ongoingly, is the one who calls them, that's God. And so if a persuasion, any persuasion, one that's in your mind right now that you brought with you into this church, in your mind, any persuasion that you have, no matter how strongly you hold that opinion or idea, if it's not shared by God, the all-knowing God, creator of the universe, the one who calls his people, if he doesn't share that opinion, one of you logically is wrong. And you know who it is. And that's Paul's point. The Judaizers' persuasion of justification by works is not shared by God. God disagrees with it. So you don't want to hold something that God disagrees with. This verse actually gets to one of the reasons that false teaching spreads so much in our world and why we ourselves are susceptible to it. Because if you think about it, there are many realms of knowledge where you can take a piece of data or an argument or a claim and you can test it in an immediate way. People in lab coats have their hypothesis. They may claim, look, here's these two chemicals, these two liquids, and if you put them together, they'll have a strong reaction. That's the claim. They say that. But you don't have to take their word for it because in the realm of science here, you can take those two chemicals and you put them together and then you can watch and then you can see what's going to happen. So you don't have to take the professor, the scientist's word for it. You just watch it happen. And there are many realms of knowledge like that. The difficulty though is when it comes to doctrine, just like history is this way as well, but when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to the teachings of Scripture, the things that are essential, justification by faith, can you see that? Can you take justification by faith alone and treat it under a microscope like a scientific hypothesis and prove it? Can you blend it together and watch a chemical reaction take place? Then how do you know that justification by faith alone is true. There's only one way you know that. There's not two. There's literally one way you know that. Because that's what God said. God said it in the Scriptures. This is the only proof that you have of the gospel by which your soul forever lives in paradise or torment. It's this. That's it. God that's why when Paul wants to say that the persuasion, the teaching of these Judaizers is false, the strongest thing he can say, besides what he's going to say here, but one of the strongest things he can say is, God does not agree with you. This persuasion does not come from God. And in theology, if something does not come from God, it's not true. It's simply error. It's simply false. It's simply unreality. All of the doctrines that we hold to, we hold to on the basis of God's Word because that is God speaking to us. How would you know if any persuasion you hold, especially in ideas of Bible or anything, how would you know 
that that comes from God. This persuasion is not from God, the one who calls you. How do you know it is from God? This is how you know. Just this. The greatest safety any of us therefore have with persuasions coming in all the time. Everybody has ideas about God. Everybody has ideas about salvation. Everybody has ideas about the life to come or the absence of a life to come. Everybody has ideas about who God is and what He likes and what He doesn't like and how you can get right with Him and who's right with Him and who's wrong with Him. Everybody's got ideas. Everybody disagrees. How do you know what persuasion is true? Does it come from God? Meaning, is it found in the pages of Scripture? If you want to be protected from false persuasions, from leaven, the danger of leaven, of false teaching, know God's Word. Know it thoroughly. Know it like your life depends on knowing it. It's the only safety that you have, is to know, if you don't know God's Word, I'm not talking perfectly, you can quote every verse in there, but if you don't have a sense of what God's Word is, if you're not growing in your knowledge of God's Word, not your knowledge about people talking about God's Word secondhand, those are persuasions, but I mean you knowing the Bible, you reading the Bible, you hearing the Bible, if you're not growing in your knowledge of God's Word, you're very vulnerable to all kinds of false teaching. It, it just takes one guy well-dressed and confident coming in quoting some verse you've never heard and claiming there is no trinity. But if you know your Bible, you know there's a trinity. Leaven is then error. It is wrong. It is false. does not come from God. However, I want to go a step further here because really in this passage, Paul is not, when he speaks of leaven, just talking about error of any kind. Because, for example, if you think of Paul himself, did Paul ever err? Did Paul ever make a mistake? Was Paul ever wrong about anything? Now, we, of course, hold such a very high view of Paul. God used him to bring us so much of the Scriptures. We're grateful for that. Paul doesn't have papal infallibility. Paul made mistakes. In fact, he told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, not that I am yet perfect. That's Paul talking about himself. I'm not yet perfect. Paul made mistakes. Now, if Paul made mistakes, including in his speech, because as James said, if you can control your speech perfectly, you can control everything. You're a perfect man. Paul's not a perfect man. Paul would not always have spoken perfectly, rightly. And so, is Paul himself leaven? Is his teaching, is his speech, is his life leaven? Because if we're just saying leaven is error, then there's error in Paul as a human, not when God is guiding him for the Scriptures, but in his day-to-day -day life. There would be error. So when Paul's thinking of leaven, he's not including himself in that group, meaning he's not just talking about error of any kind. He has a very specific kind of error in mind. Not all error, but a very specific kind of error. And if you look at verse 11, you'll see what it is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision as necessary for salvation, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. It seems that maybe the Judaizers 
were making claims that Paul actually agreed with them, that circumcision was necessary. Maybe he just didn't share it with them, but he told it to other churches. It seems like someone's claiming Paul really does. I mean, Paul himself was circumcised. Paul himself kept a lot of the rules, the customs of Moses. And Paul says, no, I do not agree with the Judaizers. Don't let them trick you and make you think I agree with them in any way. He said, if you want proof that I don't agree with them, Ignore what they say. Just realize I'm being persecuted everywhere I find Jewish communities. Because you might remember the Judaizers really wanted to have the people circumcised so that the Judaizers could escape persecution from their kinsmen, the Jews. Because the Judaizers realized we can convince people to follow Jesus as long as we also get them circumcised and basically turn them into good Jews who also believe in Jesus. If we do that, our Jewish kinsmen will look and go, wow, you're expanding Judaism. You're just making more Jews who agree that Jesus is a prophet and all that is fine, but you're just making more Jews. But the second that Paul came and said, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the customs of Moses. They've been fulfilled by Jesus. You as a Gentile can remain a Gentile, stay non-Jewish, and you can be saved. In fact, even if you were to become a Jew, the Jews are not good enough inherently to be right with God. You can see how that's offensive. And when that's heard, the Jewish people persecuted. So the Judaizers were trying to escape persecution, and Paul says, don't let them trick you into thinking I agree with them at all. Obviously, I'm not preaching circumcision as necessary for salvation because look, everywhere I go, I'm persecuted. In that case, he says, the offense of the cross has been removed. The cross says being Jewish isn't good enough, and that's offensive. The cross also says that to you. Whatever you've tried to do to be right with God, the cross comes in and says, you failed. You're not good enough. You haven't worked hard enough. It doesn't get you right with God. That's why a cross is necessary. There is an offense that's inherent to the cross. And when Paul is talking about leaven in this passage, he's not just talking about any kind of error. He's talking about error that sits at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Error that, like the Judaizers did, nullifies the cross. If you nullify the cross, you can't be saved. The cross is the only way you're saved. So really, the kind of leaven Paul has in view is not you are wrong about the weather. It's not even that you are wrong about a secondary doctrine as important as those are in the Scriptures. It is you are wrong about an essential belief of the Christian faith without which you cannot be saved. We call that kind of error, which exists in a category on its own, heresy. And I would encourage you to reserve the term heresy for that kind of error. You may strongly disagree with people, their views on the end times. Please don't call them heretics if they are not heretics. You may disagree with people and their views on spiritual gifts. Don't call them heretics unless they are heretics. Heresy is you are stubbornly denying something that by denying you cannot be saved. It is the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, what he did there. It is the Trinity because that gets to who God actually is. If you deny the Trinity, you don't even have the real God. You have a different God who cannot save you. That's heresy. That's the idea of leaven right here. You can still be a Christian and 
err and be wrong, just like Paul at times would have been, on different doctrines, different ideas, but you can still be a believer. But if you are a heretic, by definition, you cannot be saved so long as you hold to that heresy. You can repent and be saved, praise God, but not as you're holding stubbornly to that error. The problem here is the Judaizers. What sets them apart from Paul? Why are they leaven and Paul's not leaven? Because their error denies justification by faith alone. And if you deny justification by faith alone, that is heresy. You cannot be saved if you believe that your works contribute to your salvation. You nullify the cross. You remove its offense. You make it useless. This makes sense of why in our passage, Paul's words are so strong. Because he's not dealing with error. He's dealing with the kind of error called heresy that drives men's and women's souls into hell. That's why he says, verse 10, the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty. That's eternal judgment. They will bear that, whoever they may be. And of course, the famous verse 12 I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. If they're so obsessed with cutting, let them go all the way. This is simply Paul strongly opposing the worst of all errors known as heresy. And he can't express himself any stronger than he is. That's the leaven that Paul is writing against. I belabor this point a little bit, and you may wonder why, but it's because... Some people are wired in such a way or fall into a way of thinking that, like the Israelites in the Old Testament who were commanded on the day before Passover to remove all leaven from their house, there are some people who consider it their duty to come into a church and remove all leaven which they define as any biblical idea that they disagree with or even any error. They have to remove it from the house of God, and they do so with the zeal, and of course, the purging process is indefinite. It goes on forever and ever because they find error everywhere with everyone. In other words, there's a threshold that's set too low, and if you're not defining leaven as heresy, that's when Paul says, I wish they'd emasculate themselves. That was not him talking about someone who had a different political emphasis than he had. You understand? I wish they'd emasculate them. He's not talking about someone with a different end times view. He's not even talking about someone who's genuinely getting something biblically wrong that's not an essential. Paul is talking about heretics, genuine heretics. Those are the leaven in this text. It reminds me even for myself, to give you an example I want to protect you from this experience, doing this or receiving this, but I remember several years ago I was preaching on a text of Scripture that throughout 2,000 years of church history has had one standard interpretation. It's the way most people have taken this passage. It's the way most solid scholars take the passage today, and it's the way I understand the passage. It seems very clear to me. Therefore, I preached it that way. However, there is another way to take the passage. It's very uncommon. Not many have held it, but one very prominent and popular Bible teacher in our times holds that minority view of how the passage is to be understood. Several years ago, I was preaching on that passage here, 
And there, after I preached it, I preached it the way I understood it and the way most people have. I came down, and there was a family I'd been wanting to get to know. They seemed very sweet. Hadn't got to know them yet, so I had a conversation with them. And I remember talking with the wife, and everything seemed to be great, very friendly, wonderful, wonderful. And then she just said, I need to tell you something. And she said, I think you are just playing fast and loose with the Scriptures. Obviously, I care very much about that, so I said, please explain yourself. She was heavily influenced by this popular Bible teacher, whom I love as well. She had apparently heard his minority view take on the passage, and since I disagreed with his rare, unusual take on the passage, it was not just I had gotten something wrong, but I was actually a very untrustworthy preacher, and she made that certain in no uncertain terms in a variety of ways, and I was shocked, and I explained to her my position, how it's the majority view, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It meant nothing. I was leaven. I had to be purged out. It was a shocking experience, and I hope that you can be delivered from ever yourself experiencing that or putting that on someone else. So when you read a passage with this strong of language, know that the leaven Paul has in mind is not just error or disagreement of any kind, but it is reserved for heresy. All error matters. We don't minimize any error. But this is reserved for heresy, so let's keep it there. We have seen then what leaven is in this passage. We need to turn now to two of the things that leaven, if you don't deal with it, does. Look at this in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth. First, leaven always hinders. Bear in mind that the Galatians had not yet embraced the heresy of the Judaizers. Instead, this letter is written as the Galatians stand on top of this pinnacle, teetering between the possibility of turning to their heresy and the possibility of rejecting their heresy. So there were some ways in which the Galatians were already leaning toward error, heresy. They were observing days and months and seasons and years, Paul said. They're already listening to the Judaizers. The influence is already being felt. But you remember, they were not yet circumcised. He said, if you, if you are circumcised to be saved, Christ means nothing to you, but that suggests they're not circumcised yet. They're not fully bought in but they're leaning in the direction of heresy. The Judaizers, therefore, in our text, had already had an effect on the Galatians, even before the Galatians wholeheartedly embraced their heresy. Already just by being close to the heresy, by touching the heresy, it's like they were running they haven't fallen on their face. They haven't gone unconscious. They haven't stopped running, per se, but they've tripped. They've stumbled, and that certainly slows you down. That's what happened here. He said, you were running well, but somebody came in, and they tricked you. They tripped you. They've distracted you. Because false teaching, even if you don't fully embrace it, as it influences you, it hinders you from running the race. He uses the picture of a race here. And this is used throughout the New Testament of your Christian life. And any of you who are runners or have tried running or have 
thought about running. You can relate to what's going on here because a race hurts. Yes, a race is hard. You're running, your heart is beating, your legs are burning, but you have to keep running. Mile one, mile two, mile three. Whether you run or not physically, as a Christian, your life is compared to a race because it's not easy and you have to keep doing it. Keep pushing forward. Keep fighting your sin. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep praying. Keep watching. Fight against error. There's so much. But what happens is if leaven comes near and we don't deal with it appropriately, you're going to run more slowly. You're going to live your Christian life with greater apathy, with less passion, with less zeal, with less energy. Hebrews chapter 12 says, quote, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice he says, to do that well, what do you have to set aside? Sins, yes, but something else, weight, every weight, because what will a weight do if you're running? It will slow you down. False teaching and its influence is a weight. If you don't grab hold of it, you won't, you don't, it's not like you're going to lose your salvation here. If you don't grab hold of it, you can still be a believer and just be close by it. But even being close by it, not thinking appropriately about it, not dealing with it in a healthy way, it will still be a weight in your life. It will still slow you down. So if this well-dressed Unitarian were to come in to our midst and let's say that we don't deal with him appropriately, we don't challenge him, we don't push him, but we just allow him to be here, say, oh, it just differs, okay. And let's say as you're talking with him, he's going around sharing his view, he disagrees with early councils, this is a man-made doctrine, da, 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 okay. And let's say that you never come to hold his view. You think, I don't think he's right. I agree with the Trinity. But you're treating it not like verse 12. You're just treating it like, ah, it's fine. Do you know what would almost certainly happen to your view of the Trinity? It will go from this level of confidence to this level of confidence. You'll still hold it. It's not this level of confidence. But when it drops down, it goes from a teaching that you're convinced is in the Scriptures that that is your God and you love Him and you love His Trinitarian existence. It's a mystery. You can't fully understand it. But you embrace it. It causes worship. It goes from that to you'll tolerate the doctrine. Because after all, good people differ. You know, he differs over here on it. And he's a nice guy. So it must not be as important of a doctrine as I thought. What has happened right there? You were sprinting, then you were slowing down, then you tripped a little bit, and now you're limping along, still believing the Trinity, but it's not so important. This is what had happened to the Galatians. They seem to still be holding justification by faith alone. But here are these false teachers day after day persuading them, and although they've not agreed, they've let down their guard. Okay, okay, we'll keep the festivals. We'll keep the Jewish days and Sabbaths. It can't, maybe it's not that important. It's going down and down. He says, you've been hindered. That's what false teaching does. If you don't yourself in your own mind solidify yourself against clear false teaching, and if we don't as a local church deal with false teaching when it comes in, we will all be hindered. We can't allow that to happen. Just to give some examples practically of this, in the last so many years, 1994, there was a document put out 
called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Now, we love Catholics. I know I speak of Catholicism up here at times, but I love Catholic people. I know that you love Catholic people too. We have no hatred, no bitterness. One of my favorite authors of all time is Roman Catholic. Love Catholic people. But this document in 1994 was put together by Roman Catholics and Protestants, including some names we would really respect, and they put together a document that basically said, hey, we're brothers and sisters. We're all part of the body of Christ here. There is a unity. There is a common ground here, even doctrinally. We all believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the costly gospel of grace, as they called it. We all believe that, so we need to just get past our differences here. There's a unity. We differ on some stuff, but there's a unity here. But you know what that doctrine doesn't even talk about or that document doesn't even talk about? Justification by faith alone which is the material cause of the Reformation, which sits at the heart of why, though we love Roman Catholics 100%, we understand that we disagree just like we disagree with Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or Muslims or Hindus. We disagree. I know we share more of the same language with Roman Catholics, true, but at the very center of everything where it really counts, justification by faith alone, we believe that, and we believe that to be essential to the gospel. And Roman Catholicism officially doesn't. Many within the church are genuine believers, I guess because I don't know officially what's taught. The anathemas included in the Council of Trent right after the Reformation include the anathema that if you believe in justification by faith alone, you are anathema. You are cursed. That's a difference. You know, that never comes up in the document, but that is the center of our disagreement. So what happened even as a result of that document is that it said, okay, you know, maybe let's not overblow the differences here. And then it really just brought down a sense that justification by faith mattered that much. I mean, if we can get along, maybe it doesn't matter that much. You had other things which may even have been ripples of that, such as the new perspective on Paul. And we won't get into that this morning, but if you know about biblical scholarship over the last so many decades, that it was a big, big thing. The new perspective on Paul, the reformers got it all wrong. It's not justification by faith versus justification by works. They got it wrong. It's this whole other thing about markers of the community, the Jewish community, and so forth. But that as well, you can hold to that and be a genuine believer. There are some, I'm thinking of one especially, very great, solid biblical scholars who hold to that view. But you know what it does? It hinders you. It makes you think justification by faith, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Bring it down a notch. That is what heresy always does. Even if you don't embrace the heresy wholeheartedly, you, like the Galatians, will be hindered in your run if you don't bar the false teaching and make clear that it's on that side of the canyon and we're on this side of the canyon. Not the same. There is a second thing that the leaven of false teaching heresy does, and that is leaven spreads. Verse 9 provides the main image of this message. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In the Bible, leaven is often used as a picture of something evil spreading until it contaminates an entire host. I already shared how in the Old Testament, God's people, when they were delivered out of Egyptian slavery, had to go out quickly, so God told them, don't leaven your bread. Eat unleavened bread that doesn't rise. 
As they commemorated that escape from Egypt year after year, the people of Israel were commanded to celebrate every year a week-long feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember how God brought them quickly up out of the land. And the first day of that week was the Passover. And the day before the Passover, God commanded the people to go through their houses and just to be safe, get rid of all the leaven everywhere. Still happens this day if you know any Jewish people. They will go through and remove anything leaven in their home. You've got to remove all of it. And so over time, with that background, leaven became symbolic or a picture of something usually evil that needs to be removed because they had to remove it from their house. And something that if you don't remove it, it contaminates the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5.8 uses this picture and says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. So it's using leaven for that there. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you may remember that Jesus warned his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the, false, the religious leaders. And they thought he really meant actual leaven, but he meant their teaching and their hypocrisy. Leaven works very well as a picture of an evil influence because like I said earlier, it's small, but you get it into the lump and it's everywhere. They wouldn't have known this then, but leaven is just made up of these little yeast or sourdough starter, these little microorganisms that go into the dough, get trapped in the dough and produce by consuming sugars and things like that, produce little bits of gas that get trapped into the dough. That's why the bread rises. But it's these microorganisms, these tiny little things, that even the leaven that you can see, whether it be yeast or starter, it's very small, and the dough is very big. But once you get it in there, you're not getting it out. It will spread everywhere in that lump. Heresy, leaven, it spreads. It doesn't stay put. You can't get the leaven in there, and then when you're done with it, get the leaven back out. It doesn't work that way. It will spread everywhere throughout the whole lump. It starts as a seed. It starts kind of like how a little seed starts so small, but if that seed stays there in the ground in the right conditions, it grows, it grows, it gets bigger and bigger, and it's a tree. So, well, that was just a seed, and now it's a tree if you don't interfere with it. It spreads, it grows. That is what heresy does. If you think about many of the Ivy League Colleges that exist today, the big ones, including the big three, do you know, you may know, they started as seminaries. That's how they began. Harvard began as a seminary to prepare God's people, specifically his leaders, to be good preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Harvard seemed to begin to compromise, even in the 1700s, then you had some people sending their sons instead to Yale. Because Yale will keep them faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, you know how that worked out. So Yale began to compromise. So what happens? They begin a new seminary, Princeton. That way, they can send them to Princeton and be faithful because Yale is becoming unfaithful to the gospel. Time goes on and Princeton goes away, so they send them to Westminster. And time proceeds and proceeds. Notice, heresy doesn't just sit there doesn't just sit there. It never reverses with the almost sole exception of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where you had a reverse back to conservative Bible-believing teaching. That basically never happens, right? I mean, it never happens because heresy always spreads. 
It's so active, like yeast, like start. It's spreading, it's contaminating, it's reaching. If you sit still, false teaching doesn't. You lose. It takes over everything. That's the way that it is. It spreads. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're not fear mongers, okay? And we're not alarmists. We don't go around all afraid that there are demons under every rock and there are false teachers everywhere all the time and maybe you're one of them. That's not our behavior. That's not our attitude. That's not how we should behave. Christ will keep his promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But every one of us in this room has a responsibility to know the word of God sufficiently to stand against the leaven that always wants to infect the lump of dough that we are. Of course, this is first a responsibility for us leaders. And we under shepherds here take that seriously and are always watching and on the lookout for error to confront it. But look, even in verse 10 here, Paul's not just speaking to the leaders when he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And that's how I feel here. Although we speak this way about false teaching, I have confidence that you will take no other view. But that is going to require that you know the right view from which you're not supposed to take other views. Do you know what imputation means? You don't need to go get some seminary degree here, but that's one of the things under attack. Do you know what it means? Maybe that's something you should go and learn. What does it mean that Christ's righteousness is imputed? Do you know what the doctrine of the Trinity is? Do you know what we mean? Not fully, of course, none of us do, but do you know basically what we mean when we say there is one God who exists as three persons, there are not three gods? Can you explain justification by faith alone? And could you explain to someone why the alone really, really matters? Do you know the difference between justification and sanctification? Would you be able to explain someone who believes that the Bible got the question of human sexuality wrong, that it was merely a reflection of its own culture, time, and place, that we've moved beyond that, that the Bible can err in cultural matters and scientific matters, but it doesn't err when it comes to life and practice as Christians? Would you be able to explain to someone why that is not true? Do you know what the inerrancy of the Bible means? or the infallibility of the Bible means? Would you be able to explain to a friend how what you believe about the gospel is different than what a Roman Catholic believes, or a Mormon believes, or a Jehovah's Witness believes, or a Muslim, or a Hindu? If you don't decide on these questions, you don't have to know everything, but if you don't have an opinion, a view, a resolution on these ideas, other people would be happy to come in here and make those decisions for you. But so long as we live, we say over our dead body, it shall not be here. May God grant that for us, we would be one holy, unleavened lump, pleasing to Him at His return, with the leaven far over there.